As has already been mentioned this morning, we certainly extend a very warm welcome to each and every one and glad that we're able, being blessed by God with the capability and the disposition to be here on this occasion, this Lord's Day. As we've assembled and gathered, one of those parts of it is to consider the Word of God and use that to increase and to encourage and edify ourselves in the most holy faith. And over the next few moments this morning, I would ask that you think with me about a scene, an episode, if you will, in the ancient life of Israel, found from our reading as Brother Joy read it for us in the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel. As we study the Old Testament from time to time, we're often reminded, and powerfully so, about the character of those things that we encounter then. What is the purpose of that Old Testament? And as we study that, in what way can we make such grand usages of it to help ourselves in our service to God? It is entirely fair to say that that Old Testament, as we consider it, is such that we do not serve under that law for salvation today. An ample number of New Testament texts remind us of that very fact, and of that there can be no misunderstanding. But is it not still also true that whatsoever things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope? We look then with interest to those scenes of the Old Testament that so often present rather dramatic examples. Sometimes those examples are for behavior that is praised, noteworthy, and positive. And how thankful we ought to be for such examples that we may imitate them to the extent that's reasonable, but isn't it also true that there are examples of the most heinous things, things that are not only not pleasing to God, but are condemned so forcefully by Him? Obviously, we should not seek to imitate them, but should shun such imitation and strive to better our lives by the mistakes that they made. This morning, this scene from 1 Samuel will fall under the second of those categories. Not to be imitated by us, but to learn from the mistakes thereof and to use that in a way that can help us. Again, the glory departed from Israel on this occasion. In fact, that's the title I've given to the lesson this morning, The Glory Departed from Israel. Would you turn with me then to 1 Samuel? Let us rehearse, first of all, the events of that chapter, setting before our minds the thoughts of what took place, and then with it we'll draw some lessons that can help us in our service to God. This particular time in Israelite history, they were ruled by the judges. They had not arrived at that point when there was a king, for instance, like Saul or David or Solomon. It was still the reign of the judges, that period of time in which God raised up these individuals to specifically deliver Israel from the difficulties that they faced. On this occasion, the judge in hand was a man by the name of Eli. He was the 14th of the 15 judges listed in the Old Testament. And not only that, this particular period of time was one in which the Philistines were causing great difficulties for the people of God. They often would be the enemies, and David as well as Saul and others would spend many difficult times battling them. On this occasion, as chapter 4 of 1 Samuel opens, we again see a battle taking place between the Philistines on the one hand and between the Israelites on the other. These two encampments were pitched, one beside Ebenezer, one beside Aphek, and as they engaged battle in that area between, we quickly find that the Philistines were victorious. They defeated Israel on this occasion, and 4,000 Israelite soldiers were slaughtered. 4,000 of the people of Israel were slain. In the aftermath of that defeat, 
Verse number 3 reminds us that God's people, when they came back to the camp, what ones were not slain, they were confused and perplexed as to why God would allow them to be defeated this way. What is it that was such that it would prompt God to allow these heathen individuals, these Philistines, to defeat them? At this point, I would ask you read with me verse 3. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. The idea then that these elders of Israel had, once they appreciated defeat, Let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, bring it here and allow it to lead us into battle, and surely that will guarantee us victory over these Philistines. Surely the very presence of this Ark of the Covenant will be sufficient to mean that God will have to make us win. Isn't it interesting that through the scenes of their idea, verses 4 and following inform us that they did exactly what they planned to do. They quickly went and fetched the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. They brought it to the place of the battle scene. And very quickly thereafter, we see a great sense of rejoicing among God's people. They thought that this excitement and this emotion that came with having the Ark of the Covenant present would mean they would be victorious in the next battle against the Philistines. Needless to say, when the battle began in verse number 9 and 10, we quickly observe that Israel went into it greatly expecting victory. The Philistines, on the other hand, having now been aware that the Ark of the Covenant was amongst their enemy, they were a bit fearful, but they encouraged themselves. And in that encouragement, they also entered into the battle expecting to do well. What came to be in terms of this battle? Who won this second installment of this battle? Verse number 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter for their fell of Israel, 30,000 footmen. With the Ark of the Covenant now in the midst of the battle scene, they again engaged battle, and again the Philistines were victorious. This time, not only 4,000, but 30,000 Israelite soldiers were slaughtered. However, the darkest events of the day were yet to be mentioned. Verse number 11. And the ark of God was taken, and, two, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And thus we see, no doubt, one of the darkest days in all of Israelite history. Here they entered into battle with that very precious piece of furniture, the ark of the covenant. As they were so certain that it would guarantee victory, they quickly found out differently. Not only were they beaten again and even more resoundingly than before, 30,000 of them were slain. The two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were also put to death. And as if that wasn't enough, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. That very singular piece of furniture that symbolized and identified the very presence of God among them was taken. It no longer was a possession of Israel. For quite some time, in fact, it would remain a possession of the Philistines. Several months would elapse before they would send it back to Israel. As the chapter moves onward from verses 12 to 22, here's the aftermath of what took place. A man of Benjamin left the battle scene and ran back to Shiloh to inform them of what had happened. 
How did the battle go? When this messenger came back, Eli was expectantly waiting, somewhat anxious about what had happened concerning the Ark of the Covenant. When the news was relayed to him that his two sons were slain and the Ark of God was now captured and that Israel was beaten, Eli was so upset that he fell off his seat backward. He hit his head, breaking his neck, and Eli died. It would seem this day only gets worse and worse the further we go. Now this aged judge of Israel was also dead on the same day. And as the chapter closes, once word of what had happened was brought to the other members of the community, we find that Phineas's wife had a very interesting response. She was pregnant, you see. And in her pregnancy, when she got news that her husband was now dead, her father-in-law was now dead, Israel had now been beaten, the ark of God was taken, such distressing news brought the labor pains upon her, and she proceeded to enter into labor with this child that was within her. As the moments passed, she, in fact, ultimately would die giving birth to this child. It was a boy. But before she died, she was able to name the son. As was read to us in verse number 21, she named the son Ichabod. And that word in Hebrew means inglorious. Again, that word in Hebrew means inglorious, not glorious. And notice the statement that she made in verse number 21. The glory is departed from Israel. What a sad and what a dark day in the history of the people of God. It started out bad by the reference to the mention in verses 1 and 2 that they were already defeated once by the Philistines. And now their idea of taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle only led to a darker day. For they were not only beaten again, but Eli the judge and his two sons the priests were all slain the same day. We also appreciate that not only were they beaten, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And finally, even Phineas' wife died, giving birth to a son that she named Inglorious, Ichabod. As we reflect upon the lessons of 1 Samuel chapter 4, what might be some things, some applications that we might use today to help us not to make those same mistakes, but rather to serve in a way that would be more acceptable and more pleasing to God than was the service of ancient Israel on this occasion. May I submit that the first mistake that they made was the following. They trusted in things. Now admittedly, it was a religious thing, but it was nonetheless a thing. Would you reread with me again their idea from verse 3? Their idea in terms of guaranteeing or providing victory was to go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant. And notice the language that they so powerfully use. When it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Where was God mentioned here? It may save us out of the hand of our enemies. This Ark of the Covenant, this piece of furniture may save us out of the hand of our enemies. The first mistake that the children of Israel made, at least in reference to this chapter, was their trust in religious things. It might be noted that this was not the only time in Israelite history that an event like that took place. In fact, centuries later, they would make a very similar mistake again. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, in that great day in which the prophet Jeremiah was urged and commanded to proclaim and preach the word of God, Israel found themselves in the following circumstance. They were shortly to be on the losing end. 
as such. They were desirous of repentance. And however, when they were preached that by Jeremiah, they very quickly said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In essence, they to him said, as long as that temple is standing and as long as that we have to visit and to go to, we are fine. They placed their confidence and all their trust in that standing temple, completely failing to appreciate that what was utterly most important was not that physical edifice itself, but the attitude and covenant relationship that they were to have with the one who allowed them to build it. And so it was on this occasion in 1 Samuel 4. It was not the special character of that piece of furniture itself that was so remarkable. It was the God who commanded it to be built and the God who fashioned it by way of instruction and who formed a covenant relationship with them by virtue of it. It seems as though Israel had forgotten that point. They placed their confidence in that Ark of the Covenant thinking that if it were brought to the battle site, it would guarantee their victory. As we've already seen, it did not. In fact, they lost again. And in fact, more dramatically than they had at the first. Isn't it true that even today that can be a difficult temptation for us to place our confidence and our trust not, for instance, in God, but in some structure that is a thing? For instance, we may be tempted to place our confidence and trust in a building, thinking that so long as we attend once a week at a building in which the words Church of Christ are scrolled on its outside, we're fine. But that isn't true. For God demands, just as surely as with them, that we appreciate the problem is not fixed by an external matter like a building. The problem is fixed from inside. That's what the problem with Israel was. Why did they lose the first time? Why did they lose the second time? Because God wasn't with them. It didn't matter whether the Ark of the Covenant was there or not. God was not with them. And the problem was not that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there, but their heart was not with Him. Thus, that was the matter that needed fixing. But that completely escaped their attention. And bringing the Ark of the Covenant was not a quick fix to that problem. Might we notice that today we still can be tempted to us to not only put our confidence in a building or in a particular structure or a particular edifice, but maybe in a specified person or a specified action. For instance, the preacher or the elder. That's not the one who is our go-between to heaven. That's not the individual whom we should put our confidence and trust in. We appreciate the, the efforts of faithful elders and preachers, certainly and without doubt. But our trust ought to be in God. And we should strive to lift up their hands like Moses was on that occasion in Exodus 15 to 17, lift up their hands in their efforts for good, not to put our confidence and trust absolutely in them. Might it be noted that that temptation extends not only to buildings or perhaps to individuals, but even sometimes to specified actions or activities. It may be that in discussion you and I have had opportunity to speak with someone who thinks that the baptismal act is the guarantee of heaven. May we understand there's no question of the necessity of baptism, but just because a person's baptized, does that mean that the rest of his life is unimportant in terms of determining when or if he shall enter heaven? 
Well, certainly the Bible does not uphold that thought. We must remain faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. And in Matthew 10.22, those that endure to the end shall be saved. Thus, not only is baptism required, but we should not forget the fact that heartfelt religion with dedication must also characterize the remainder of our days following that wonderful act of baptism. Israel made a gigantic mistake. They placed their trust in the thing, the Ark of the Covenant, rather than in the God who supported it, who upheld it, who commanded it, and who entered into covenant relationship with them due to it. May we not make that same mistake. May we thankfully place our trust and confidence in the very words that may well be stated in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The very words of Solomon himself in that text. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Had Israel made that statement, they would have won that second battle. Had they entered into that second battle with that mentality, having made things right with God, he would have been on their side. Did not Paul say in Romans 8.31 that if God be for us, who can be against us? God was not with Israel on this occasion due in part to their failure to appreciate Him and to place their trust and their confidence in Him. Paul reminded the Roman brethren in Romans 6 verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. You and I are thus in need of that same thing, namely to be servants of righteousness. And how is it done? To obey that form of doctrine that's been delivered. Israel had failed to do that, for they trusted too much in a thing, in the Ark of the Covenant, rather than in the God and His Word that backed it up. In consideration of that mistake, may we suggest there is another. Notice what else Israel did. In addition to trusting in this thing, it's also true that they excused their disobedience. Isn't it amazing that when we read verse 3 a few moments earlier, making note of their quick idea to guarantee victory, they said, Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. We would do well to remember at least briefly what was this Ark of the Covenant that they placed so much interest upon? If we return to Exodus 25, we remember it was described. In fact, it was described in rather meticulous detail. It was told how long it was to be, how wide, how tall, how it was to be overlaid. God instructed the means by which it was to be moved. But isn't it fascinating that all the references and the instructions concerning it lead us to understand very well that it was not a military device. The Ark of the Covenant was not a piece of furniture that was to guarantee military victory. In fact, it was to be housed in the most holy place. There on top of it was the mercy seat with two cherubim facing each other with outstretched wings. The Ark of the Covenant was a spiritual matter in the sense that God promised His presence on that mercy seat which was upon the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, verses 9 and 10. In consideration of those events, those descriptions, what then did Israel have in terms of right to bring this Ark from its cherished place in the most holy place and bring it into battle? 
God had never commanded that. Never had he given a hint that it was to be used for that purpose. We thus see very quickly that what God had not allowed, what he had not specified, had already been forbidden. David learned that valiant lesson many years later, when in fact on another occasion he strove to bring the Ark of the Covenant from a place called Beth Shemesh, namely Kerjath-Jearim, all the way to the city of Jerusalem. In and of itself, no problem in that. However, how did he try to move it? Rather than the way God had specified, he tried to move it by hauling it on a cart that had been pulled by a couple of oxen. We remember when Uzzah reached out to touch it, Uzzah was stricken dead. David was so fearful of the event that he refused to bring it to Jerusalem for quite some time thereafter. Ultimately, though, in 1 Chronicles 15, he stated what the problem was, that he had not pursued it following the godly order. Today, may we see that the same things may be meaningful lessons for us. Here, Israel tried to excuse their disobedience. They entered the Ark of the Covenant, and only the high priest was supposed to enter the most holy place one day a year. Here, they had entered there and taken that Ark of the Covenant out. We notice that they were thus ready to excuse their disobedience by thinking that it would bring forth good. Doesn't that sound very reminiscent of that phrase that the, mean, the end justifies the means? In other words, as long as that which is brought about is good, it doesn't matter how it's approached or what must be done to bring it about. Does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible in essence teach that the end justifies the means? On this occasion, let us revisit what happened. They went ahead and disobeyed, bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Did it guarantee victory? It didn't. Was it such that God looked favorably upon them as a result of their thought that the end would be good? Absolutely not. We thus can learn the same lesson that the end does not justify disobedience. Even though our intention and our plan might be well and might be noble and might even be good, it does not mean we are justified in disobedience to bring that about. Two wrongs do not make a right. Interestingly enough, Israel, it seems, wasn't quick to learn that lesson. And notice how sorely they suffered because of it. Some passages that help us along that same line to see the power of it is to notice that who was guilty in addition on this, on this occasion. We can't just blame the people of Israel themselves. What about the priests? Notice again in verse 4. The two people who carried and brought this Ark of the Covenant were the priests, the high priests, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. If anyone should have known better, they should have. We see another instance when even those who in fact were the leaders of Israel and who ought to have been mature and knowledgeable enough to know better were guilty of the same mistake. That helps us also learn another rather valiant lesson, namely that God's people often had leaders that did not lead them in the way they should have gone. Leaders that were just as guilty of errors as the people themselves were. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. To quote Jeremiah 5, verse 31. Today, may we, in fact, encourage our leaders in ways that are right, our elders, and even ourselves as we strive to walk the straight and narrow pathway that leads to life. May we understand that here Israel made that gigantic mistake. 
was there no one in Israel willing to stand up and say, this is not right? You would think the priest would have been in that position. You would even think Eli would have. But even apparently Eli was not able to cause this not to take place. Today, as we consider things like that, May we strive to be strong ourselves with a knowledge of the Word of God and not willing to support those who make plans that are apart from it and that in fact so powerfully oppose it. Again, the end does not justify the means. Saul perhaps is as great an example of ending the Old Testament to that end. In 1 Samuel 15, God specifically told him through Samuel, you destroy the Amalekites utterly and completely. We each remember, however, that Saul did not do that. He spared Agag the king, and in addition to that, he also spared certain of the flocks and herds and other possessions of the Amalekites. When he returned to the encampment of Israel, Samuel met him and directly asked, did you keep the commandment of God? And he said, yes. However, Samuel proceeded to ask him various questions such as, Why then do I hear the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? If you've kept the commandment of God, why do I hear these things that you've brought back? Ultimately, Samuel, Saul then responded, The people wished to bring them back so they could sacrifice them to God. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Human intuition might lead one to think, Well, that's a great idea. God wasn't pleased. Why not? In fact, in verse 22, Samuel, speaking for God, rather directly told him, again, told Saul, it is better, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Sacrifice by itself is not a bad thing under the Old Testament era, but God had said something else, and God's word takes precedence. Human intuition, human ideas, striving to reach the end by justification concerning human means, that is not pleasing to God. Second mistake then Israel made. They excused their disobedience by thinking that the end would justify the means, and it didn't. What about a third mistake that they also made? Consider this also with me from this very same text. It has to do again with the name that Phineas' wife gave her son. Ichabod, which means the glory is departed from Israel. I've already made mention that this certainly must have been one of the darkest days in all of Old Testament Israelite history, considering the number of bad things that happened to them. They indeed brought them upon themselves as God responded in punishment upon them, but might we note the glory departed from Israel. What was Israel's glory? What was it that lifted her high amongst the nations of the earth and made her a glorious nation? It was her association with the God of heaven. God had in fact promised them in Exodus 24 when they made a covenant with him then, all that God hath said will we do. They promised to be obedient, Exodus 24, 7. They promised to be responsive to all that God had commanded. As a result of that, they became strong. You might remember that they were such that they wandered through the wilderness and God protected them and preserved them and secured them. Ultimately, when they came time to cross into the promised land, it was a land that God gave them. God took care of them. Their glory was responsive to the fact they were His. 
in 1 Samuel 16, a bit later in this very same book, God will in fact make a very dramatic reference to them. He says, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. Israel's problem all along was not the fact the Ark of the Covenant was not there. Their problem was inside. They had forgotten God. They had moved aside from Him. They'd put a confidence in a thing instead of Him. They had heart troubles. Not physical heart troubles, but spiritual heart troubles. No wonder David was such a bright and shining beacon when God would say that he's a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13. For you see, God's people had forgotten him far too often. Later, Jeremiah would make that sad refrain. God, speaking through him, would say in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32, Can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. You see, the glory had departed from Israel because they had departed from him. Isn't it sad to note several occasions in the Bible when individuals thought that God was with them, but he wasn't? This was clearly one episode, but think with me of another. There was a time when we remember the man named Samson. He was that strong person of great physical prowess, capable, in fact, of accomplishing mighty feats with his strength. However, Delilah deceived him. And there was an occasion when we will remember that in that deception, his hair was cut and he became weak. But there's a statement made over the course of that description. He arose, you remember, on the third occasion when, he was, when his hair had been cut. And he arose thinking that God was with him. But the text says, he wist not that the Lord was not with him. Samson didn't even know that God wasn't with him. That's a sadness, isn't it? Today, you and I need to certainly tread carefully and understand that when we follow the ways of God, He shall be with us, for that He's promised. I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world, Matthew 28, 20. But when we, in foolishness or disobedience and placing confidence in things instead of Him, He will depart from us. For we have placed our confidence somewhere other than Him. It would be a sad thing to stand before the God of heaven at judgment and hear him say, you didn't trust in me with all your heart. You trusted in something else, someone else, some other entity. As Christians, how glowingly is the description of the New Testament that you and I and our trust of him are described in language such as 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Or in chapter 5, the very next chapter of the same book, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but henceforth live unto them, unto him which died for them, and rose again. As Christians, we've been risen from the watery grave of baptism to serve a risen Savior. We don't live calling the attention and all the means to ourselves, but we, in fact, live in such a way representative of the risen Savior. We are His ambassadors. The love of Christ so constrains us. That third lesson, then, that we see behind us on the wall, isn't it a shame when that glory departs from those that ought to be so glorious? May we not forget the name Ichabod. That simply means again the glory is departed from Israel. In summary to our lesson today, maybe we can briefly summarize the following points. 
this dark day in ancient Israel now lives with us thousands of years later to help us see that those mistakes can still in type be made today. May we be wise enough to recognize that fact and not make those same mistakes. But rather, may we appreciate not to put trust in things for our spiritual salvation or our relationship with heaven or to God, but to put our trust in the living God who giveth all things richly, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Secondly, may we never excuse disobedience. For indeed, as we've seen today, the end does not justify the means. We must obey faithfully until death and appreciate that God shall bless those who are responsive to His will and do those things that are His bidding. And then finally, may we note that when we do find ourselves astray from God, it is such that in fact the greatest of our glory has departed from us. Though that Christian may have been faithful and certainly done great things for his name, when the glory departs from us by our disobedience, what a sad state we find ourselves in. Today, as we learned in from those lessons, it could be that there's one or more in the audience, in the very audience today, that needs to make a public obedience in response to the cause of Christ and to the call of the gospel invitation. If we could aid you in that response, it would be our happiness to do so. Jesus commands of us that we hear His Word. We must believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We must repent of our sins and confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. We then must be immersed, baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. Today, if you haven't done that, let today be the day. Angels in heaven are prepared to rejoice on that occasion. However, if you have done so, but you need to return to your first love due to the fact of your disobedience, other things that have brought reproach to you in the Lord's body, come back to that first love today. We'd be happy to pray on your behalf for your forgiveness, and God has promised to do that very thing. Today, if we could be of assistance to you, would you not let that be known, and would you not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?